It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Last month, President Trump issued an executive order ending his policy to separate families at the U.S.-Mexico border. Mimi Marziani is an attorney and president of the Texas Civil Rights Project, whose lawyers are representing hundreds of the migrant families. She's not satisfied with the pace of reunification. What we have not seen is proof that the government's either willing or able to move forward quickly in reuniting these families. Coming up, she breaks down what's happened so far in this effort to crack down on illegal immigration. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival held on June 26th. On May 7th, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a zero-tolerance policy. He said anyone attempting to cross the southwest border unlawfully would be prosecuted. If you smuggle illegal aliens across our border, then we will prosecute you. If you are smuggling a child, then we will prosecute you. And that child may be separated from you as required by law. This is a stricter stance on illegal crossings, according to Time magazine, because children would be separated from their parents rather than kept together in detention centers. A lot has happened since then, including President Trump's decision to halt the separation policy. Attorney Mimi Marziani says that decision was a result of public pressure. Today, she speaks with Jonathan Capehart, an opinion writer for The Washington Post. She explains the background behind the family separation policy, what it's like to represent the affected families, and how the public can get past compassion fatigue to continue to fight for this cause. Here's Jonathan Capehart. We've got to start really at the very beginning. How did we get to this point where the United States government is not only separating children from their parents, but going so far as to setting up so-called tender care shelters, which is I have taken to calling, as an opinion writer, baby jails. How did we, how did we get here, Mimi? Yes. Um, first, thank you to everybody. I really appreciate you taking a moment out of this beautiful day to learn about this horrendous human rights crisis. As we're talking, as we're going to talk about, this crisis is far from over. It's been evolving rapidly. I know it's complicated. I know that it is really hard to think about. So I, I appreciate you all being here with us this afternoon. And um, we're going to do our best to kind of walk you through things, but also leave lots of time for questions. So I run an organization called the Texas Civil Rights Project. As that name implies, we are lawyers for Texas communities. We have offices across the state, including in South Texas. And we pride ourselves as being a sword and a shield for our state's most vulnerable populations. And so uh, that has led us right in the middle of this crisis. So it um, all started on April 6th, which seems like eons ago, when Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced a new policy. Um, for years and years, when people fleeing violence, uh, particularly the, the families who are at the heart of this crisis, are coming into our country over the southern border, they go through our immigration system. The vast majority of these folks are claiming asylum. 
they go through our existing system. And um, when they come over the border, they're apprehended, they are uh, put into some sort of monitoring process, and then the asylum system plays out. So what changed on April 6th was not actually the number of families coming in. That is actually down. This is a common misperception. It's, it's actually down from recent years. What changed was that the Obama administration decided that not only were these people going to go through our immigration processes, they were going to go into criminal prosecution. And so- Under Obama or Trump? Under Trump. Okay, Sorry, Just, I, yes, yeah, yes, did, you said Obama. I mean, it, it, nothing to go to back to the halcyon days of the Obama, but she means President Trump. Yeah, sorry. I Decided to I make them criminal. Yes. Yes. So, um, th so this was what, what was decided on the 6th of April by Jeff Sessions. We, yeah, maybe I was just having nostalgia for a, a kinder, gentler time. Um, and actually nothing happened in April. This was an announcement. Everybody kind of waited to see how it would play out. What changed then in mid-May is we started to get reports, actually frantic calls, from other allies uh, in the Rio Grande Valley, including and especially federal public defenders who were saying, overnight there are dozens of parents in the courtroom they're crying, they're inconsolable, they're saying that the government has taken their children and we don't know what happened. And so since mid-April, I mean since mid-May, our team has been in the uh, criminal court every single day monitoring what's happened on the ground. And what we've seen yeah. indeed is that um, because all of these families are being pushed into the criminal system, they are then being um, prosecuted and their children are being separated from them during the interim period. And from the very beginning, and still today, unfortunately, there is no clear process for reunifying these parents and these kids. They've been launched into separate paths within the federal government. Um, Mimi, can I yes, stop you one so, second there? Yes. Um, so when the, the parents are charged criminally, yes. what's the charge? Is it a Felony charge? Is it a misdemeanor yeah. charge? It's a great question. Um, you know, this varies somewhat depending on the individual and their circumstances. The vast majority of the folks who we've talked to, and we've, uh, we are right now representing 381 families out of the roughly 2,000 who have been affected. And so the vast majority, this is the first time they've ever sought to come into the United States. They are being charged with a misdemeanor crime of illegal entry. And um, the vast majority of those folks, you know, they, they sit in jail for a couple of days before they can see a judge, and once they get in front of a judge, they're actually given time served. So by the time they um, actually go through the criminal process, it's basically over. And so that, that is one of the many reasons it's been clear to us, including statements of the Trump administration, that the purpose of the family separation and the purpose of this zero tolerance policy underlying it has been to punish these <clears throat> families. There, there's no other reason for it. Um, and when these, when these parents are before the judge and the, the judge gives them time served, they've, they've uh, pleaded guilty. Yes. 
And um, I can't remember which report I was seeing where it's like a, a mass, they're all in the courtroom and they, they plead guilty. Yes. There, is there any chance for anyone to, to protest even their arrest in court? Not really, but um, they've crossed into the country unlawfully uh, and, and kind of a separate issue. These are people who are not coming through ports of entry. The reason they're not is because the ports of entry right now from Mexico into the United States along the southern border are blocked. They are understaffed. People are being turned away. I, you've probably seen photos of people waiting on bridges mm -hmm. for days. And so these are folks that, um, and, and some of them, you know, we've heard heartbreaking stories that, you know, um, one parent had a, had a child who was deaf and, and suffered from frequent nosebleeds and felt like he had to circumvent the process to get his child help. Women with young kids um, who are fleeing, you know, multiple rape and unspeakable violence. Again, they feel like they can't wait any longer. And, and they're coming over the border. They're giving themselves up. They're pleading guilty to illegal entry. And then they're going into um, immigration detention where their asylum processes are supposed to start. But in the meantime, their children have been taken from them. Their children have been put under the care of a different agency, um, Health and Human Services, right. and, and in um, detention facilities run by something called the Office of Refugee and Resettlement, so two different tracks. So it seems, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, these, these migrants are being put into a vice or maybe even a, a, a funnel. So the government says you have to come into legal points of entry. But as you just said, and as many people have seen on television, because of understaffing or even not opening, right. those aren't available. And so then um, people try to find other ways to get into the right. country that, that are illegal. Um, one of them is, well, this isn't illegal, but another way to get into the country is to seek asylum. But didn't Attorney General Sessions put restrictions on, on who can claim asylum and under what categories? Mm -hmm. Yes and no. So to be clear, these people are seeking asylum, but the criminal prosecutions are happening first. And that has been the point of family separation. So after that, they go into immigration proceedings, at which point they are supposed to, and um, I'll, I'll asterisk this, not, we're fearing this doesn't always happen, they're supposed to get what's called a credible fear interview. If you pass that, then you go forward with your asylum proceedings. Um, so there has been, Jeff Sessions has announced some changes to the interpretation of the asylum law. Uh, he does not have the authority to change the asylum law. That, that's statutory. But it is um, a new interpretation that the Department of Justice is pushing that would try to eliminate the ability of people to seek asylum if they've been victims, if they're basing it on the basis of um, certain types of sexual assault and certain types of gang violence. And so is that in, <clears throat> excuse me, and that's in effect now? Or yes. Yes. that's in effect yes. now? In so effect. people who could come across the border, say they're seeking asylum, here's the reason why under the old interpretation would be given, it, would be given a hearing. And, and now that is not the case. To, I, I do want to clarify. Sure. I mean, look, at the, at the beginning point of this, what's called the credible fear interview, this shouldn't matter. I mean, that's a very basic 
interview. And if you, and like, like as it says, it's looking to see if you credibly fear for your life. And so at that point, people should be going forward to the asylum um, process. The, the kind of the new interpretations of the asylum law, that should actually play out later when you're in front of an immigration judge, when, when there's a judge adjudicating your case. That, that should not have any effect on these kind of early processes that we're seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing that I do think, given the conversation that we've had uh, so far, is to deal with what the Trump administration always likes to do and hurl it back at his predecessor, hurl it back at the Obama administration. Right. Well, President Obama did this. I interviewed um, former Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson on my podcast, and I asked him, mm -hmm. Given who you are and given the administration, it would not surprise me that you had separating children from families um, as one of, the th one of the options on the table. But the question for him was, how many nanoseconds did it take to exactly. remove that exactly. as an option? Right. This, administration, this administration hasn't, hasn't done that. Yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Yes, I, I do want to be clear, especially because I... Um, had some sort of strange Freudian slip earlier in the program. <laughs> right. This is a common question. Look, do I personally think the Obama administration did everything correct in terms of immigrants? No. But that is a very different question than whether or not, one, the Obama administration separated families. It did not. It was an option on the table, but that was it was never an option seriously considered right. because of the reasons that we've seen and heard from screaming children and inconsolable parents. Um, in addition, I'll note that the Obama administration was aggressive in trying to seek family detention. So, so keeping families detained while the immigration proceedings were going forward. However, the Obama administration ran into a roadblock from the courts that the Trump administration is running into right now, too. There's actually a 1997 settlement agreement. And the courts have said, look, uh, to, to use And that's the, the Flores Agreement. The Flores Agreement that, look, baby jails are, <laughs> surprise, surprise, really bad for babies. <laughs> and you're, the government's not allowed to do that. And so um, that, that settlement agreement ultimately prevented the Obama administration from <laughs> detaining families for longer than 20 days. And at that moment, the Obama administration, faced with the choice of either releasing the kids separately, separating the families, or releasing the families as a unit and putting into place common sense steps to monitor and make sure that these folks show up for their court hearing, chose the very reasonable second choice. Mimi, talk more about this monitoring because that, that actually anticipates what I was going to ask you in terms, of tracking, in terms of tracking families. How likely is it that a, that a family that's crossed the border Ill illegally and, and is released, how likely is it that they will not come back, would not come back right. for their, their court appearance, right. one? And then two, how are these families actually tracked? Yes, both excellent questions. So... The answer to the first, it depends completely on the answer to the second, the tracking mechanisms. So um, not surprisingly, 
we haven't had great success if, <clears throat> if you basically, um, sorry to be graphic, but you know, pat somebody on the butt and say, come back in two years. That's not a very effective way for making somebody come back in two years, especially when you're dealing with what is actually a very complicated immigration system. But there have been programs, including a pilot program that the Obama administration then put into place following what I just described, a case management program that involved what's called a high-touch uh, caseworker. So you were assigned a caseworker. Each family was assigned a caseworker. The family checked in with the caseworker on a regular basis, you know, had to tell them if they moved. You know, not, not rocket science, but there were very clear procedures. That program had a 99% success rate. And it was obviously more humane, it was legal, and it was a lot cheaper and more successful than any other option we've seen uh, presented. Unfortunately, the Trump administration discontinu discontinued that pilot program, so it is no longer in effect. But I think it's really important that people know it exists and, and know that um, you know, in this kind of moment of manufactured crisis, we actually have a really good solution to this that, that doesn't involve separating families or jailing babies or spending lots and lots of money on building what are probably illegal uh, family detention camps. So this is the other option. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. Today's show features Mimi Marziani, the president of the Texas Civil Rights Project. In its 26-year history, the project has worked to expand voting rights, challenge injustices within the criminal justice system, and advance racial and economic justice. Marziani's interviewer is Jonathan Capehart, Washington Post writer and host of the Cape Up podcast. Their conversation was held on June 26th during the Aspen Ideas Festival. Let's get back to it. Here's Jonathan Capehart. In terms of, and you mentioned this before, the administration is taking children away from their families and has no way of tracking them. At least the, at least the, the what is it, <laughs> 2,300 or so before the uproar. Do you know what the administration is doing now to track those children? Yes and no. So <laughs> um, to, to continue my, um, the, the, the story that I had begun, so last Wednesday there was a change. The, um, President Trump issued an executive order saying kind of two contradictory things. One was that families um, shall no longer be separated. But he also said that the zero tolerance policy of prosecuting absolutely everybody had to continue. Now, the fallout that we've seen in the last almost week has illuminated several very important things that folks should keep in mind. Number one, it showed us that there was, um, there, there almost certainly was no plan on the front end <laughs> to track these families and to make sure that they were reunited in a timely basis. And so while, um, while I think it is probably true that the government 
knows where everybody is who's in its custody. Now, that's a very low bar, right? Like, mm -hmm. if, if, you, if the government's detaining you, the government should know where you are. But I think that's probably true for both the parents and the children. However, as I noted, it's in two different, um, under the control of two different agencies. And what is, is really not clear is the mechanisms by which these, these agencies um, have to communicate. And so what, what we've heard in the last couple of days is that they are working on creating a system that they, they think they have enough paperwork to put people together. However, um, you know, this, is, this does have complications, but as somebody noted on an interview I did earlier today, you know, we all have apps on our phone that tells us exactly where our baggage is when we get on a Delta flight <laughs> or where our FedEx package is. This is within the government's power to do this and do this quickly. And so what we have not seen is proof that the government's either willing or able to move forward quickly in, in reuniting these families. Um, something else that, a big question that's left by the executive order is what about people who have already been deported? And, and we know for a fact of the 381 families that um, we are representing, we know that some of those parents are no longer in immigration detention. Um, some of them were probably released awaiting immigration proceedings. However, we think it is very likely that some of those folks were actually deported, especially because they were being held in the Port Isabel um, detention facility, which is way in the tip of South Texas in, in Brownsville. And usually that is where people are held before deportation. In addition, we do know of two children who have been deported um, without their parents. And th these, this is really frightening. And when the government tells us they know the whereabouts of everybody in its custody, that is explicitly saying, by implication, they don't know where these other folks are. And I, I think that is absolutely true. And to, to be clear, the agencies involved here, DHS is dealing with the parents. The kids, the children, are being um, um, handled by Health and Human Services, right? That's correct. However, under DHS, if you've kind of gone into a longer-term immigration proceeding, um, you're going to be ha handled by a different part of DHS. You know, we're actually concerned that ICE agents who, who oversee the Port Isabel facility, and this has been reported in the news, that they might be coercing people to try to sign voluntary deportation um, papers, or that they're just not, that they are also not coordinating with the other agencies, mm -hmm. which could be leading to, to deportations. Um, you know, I, I'm sharing this with you guys as it's been developing over the last 48 hours, and, and we are, quite frankly, right now, working with a number of groups uh, to get lawyers down, you know, as many lawyers as possible down there. I am also shouting it from the rooftops to try to get as many press down there as possible to try to figure out what's going on. And um, last question before I open it up to Q&A. Reports that the administration is looking to open up military bases to house the, the children, house the, house the families, house the immigrants that they've, that they've arrested crossing illegally on the border. Talk quick, as quickly as you can about the, dan the danger in that. 
and yes. putting them on military bases. Yes. Um, so as I mentioned before, the Trump administration is grappling with this, this court order um, saying that they can't house kids for longer than 20 days. The other practical problem is our family detention centers, there's three of them in this country, they are not just full, they have um, already requested um, from the various government agencies involved, requests to put as many people as possible. And so nobody else can fit into those agencies or those facilities. Mm -hmm. So what they have proposed is opening up two military bases in Texas and creating tent camps to hold more families. Um, Look, I mean, this, this, you know, just quite simply, this is immoral for the reasons that we've discussed. It's illegal for the reasons that we've discussed. And um, I, I haven't seen any estimates, but I would also imagine that it is going to be actually very, very expensive and pose all sorts of new logistical challenges to all of a sudden open one of our, you know, have one of our military bases, people who are supposed to be serving our country and keeping us safe, and all of a sudden, they have thousands of families and children living on their base. That this doesn't seem to make sense to me. And the, and the danger I was getting at is once you put them, on, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're the lawyer here, I'm not. But once you put them on a military base, for me, the danger is in the extreme lack of transparency. Yes. So now, once they go into those yes. military bases, we in the press, we can't get anywhere near them to begin with, but then they are completely off limits. And then as someone said on television the other day, the other thing to keep in mind is once they're on military bases, the military uses military transport. Mm -hmm. they're, not on commercial, they're not on commercial flights, which gives the government the ability to move people around the country uh, out of public view, yeah. but, in, but in plain sight. Look, I, I think those are legitimate concerns a little bit down the road. I, I, can, I can assure you, though, that our organization, um, allies of ours, would absolutely be challenging that in court. If indeed we were creating not just internment camps, but secret internment camps, um, I, I absolutely think that we would be able to challenge that and, and that we definitely will, you know, how that would play out in the long term, I don't know. Mm -hmm. So um, there are a lot of questions. <laughs> uh, my name is Sid Wilson. I'm the president and CEO for the Hispanic Association on Corporate Responsibility in Washington, D.C. Um, my question is actually uh, twofold, but very short. One is, is that um, how are they tracking the children under the age of five, particularly it's the ones that are so young, they may not even recognize their parents, is my first question. And the second question, I'm not a lawyer, is, is that if you do house children on military base, does military law come into place? And how does that happen in a military court situation um, once you're on a military base? Great question. So the second question, uh, I don't know, you know, I would imagine no, that we would that that that, they're, that these people themselves are not members of the military. So I, I think probably not. Um, the first, so everybody who goes into immigration detention, regardless of the agency, is given what's called an A number, a unique identifying number, um, and then there's a file that is created on you. And so, kind of the simplest way that everybody's being tracked, we are being told, is that families, you know, they're being their files are being connected and their A numbers are being connected. Um, now, um, obviously, there are special, you know, if you're dealing with a 10-year-old, 
they're going to be able to identify their, their, their parent. If you're dealing with a, um, and there are these kids, you know, four, three, two babies, it's just heartbreaking. And it raises different questions. Um, you know, the ORR has in the past used DNA tests. Um, you know, again, they, they have these tools. I mean, this is the United States government. They have all sorts of tools at their disposal. The big question I think we should all be asking is which of those tools they plan to use and how quickly. Next question. Here. <laughs> Hi. There was... Um, a New York Times article that came out this morning that said that border officials suspend handing over immigrant migrant families to prosecutors. Yes. And I wondered if that was relevant to anything that you were talking about today. Absolutely. Thank you. So um, as I noted, the executive order was contradictory. It said stop separating families but continue prosecutions. There, there's no, we don't have a way to, to actually do both of those things at the same time. So what we've seen on the ground since the executive order was signed, is that family prosecutions have indeed stopped. And then um, this was, I, I guess I'm going to say, announced with some sort of ounce of more definitiveness by the, the um, Center for um, Border Patrol. And the reason I am uh, couching my language like that is because at the same time, um, the, the White House uh, spokeswoman and spokespeople for the Department of Justice said, hey, 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 we're not actually changing anything. This is just on hold until we can build these family detention centers. So I, I think it is correct that at least right now family prosecutions are on hold. You know, we do believe this means that new families are not being separated for the moment. But we, we have no assurance for how long this is going to go forward. And I can tell you, um, you know, we actually keep joking in TCRP. We keep, um, you know, we don't usually quote Ronald Reagan, but we have been, um, that we are uh, trusting and verifying on this and that we are going to continue for the foreseeable future to send our volunteers and our staff to criminal court in McAllen to uh, actually see for ourselves whether or not these prosecutions are continuing and whether or not families are being separated anew. But thank you for raising that. Um, the, uh, the woman here in the blue denim and the glasses. Hi, I'm just wondering if you've been able to get into these centers because there's so many different reports of how these young children are being held. Yes. You see very upsetting images in cages, then you hear that's not accurate and that they're being held in better conditions. Have you been able to actually get proper confirmation of what the circumstances in which these children are being held? Yes. Um, our organization has not, but, it, but in part this is um, because our strategy is with a number of different organizations in Texas. This is much too big for any of us to do by ourselves. So we do have allies who have been going into the <clears throat> facilities. Um, you know, my understanding is that so, so what I am normally told is that the people running these facilities, and indeed a lot of the staff members from ORR and then the affiliated nonprofits, that they are, you know, that by all accounts, they're trying to do the best job they can with what was thrown at them too. It does not appear that they were given a heads up about hmm. this order in advance. So they seem to have been as surprised as the rest of us. Um, that said, I think like all of us involved, 
in, in um, fighting and in dealing with the fallout of this crisis, they're under-resourced. So I, I you know, just heard this morning, for instance, that one of the shelters in South Texas is saying that they are, have a dire need for additional mental health professionals to make sure that there are enough for these kids who have just, again, many of whom were experiencing um, extraordinary violence and trauma in their home countries and then have just gone through this other traumatic experience. So. Um, Again, I, I think that it is, um, you know, that, 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 that they're doing the best with what they have, but they, everybody is at maximum capacity right now. Um, but, I, you know, I do want to emphasize that, you know, I know that they have been letting now some members of the press in, some of the facilities, they've been letting some um, elected officials in, some nonprofits are able to go in under kind of different jurisdictions. There is a public database um, so you can... At least publicly, you can call and inquire about a child and, and be um, assured that they are in custody. And, and you can get a phone call back to get more information. But everything is so overloaded right now. That process is taking days. Um, so it's not exactly comforting. But it's, it's, I don't think it's the worst case scenario on the ground in these um, shelters. You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go. Coming up, attorney Mimi Marziani talks about whether the Trump administration's efforts at the southwest border are deterring people from crossing into the U.S. What we are hearing from these parents, I mean, they're not making this decision lightly to flee their countries. And, you know, we're just hearing unspeakable, unspeakable acts happening to them and happening to their children. That's just ahead, along with more questions from the audience. Catch additional conversations from the Aspen Ideas Festival by subscribing to our show. When you're a subscriber, new shows will arrive in your podcast app automatically. You'll never miss our fascinating conversations. Just search Aspen Ideas To Go in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and click subscribe. Here's Jonathan Capehart. Question here? I'm Matt Malone. I'm a Jesuit priest and I'm the editor of America Magazine. Oh. And, you know, the... The, the rationale keeps shifting, but one of the things that we've heard by people who are defending the administration's policy is that this is really about deterrence, yes. that this is all going to have a deterrent effect on people. Can, can you talk a little bit about why that's not really the case? I mean, you know, first, we've seen absolutely no evidence that that is the case. Um, and, you know, look, second, I would just say that you know, I'm a parent. As you might have noticed, I have another baby on the way. What we are hearing from these parents, I mean, they're not making this decision lightly to flee their countries. And again, I, you know, we're just hearing unspeakable, unspeakable acts happening to them and happening to their children. And, you know, I just, we were talking about people in very desperate situations. And so I have a, and that's why it's particularly egregious and immoral, and I thank the community for standing up strongly against this, that we're then separating these families. But it, it just doesn't make sense to me, honestly, as a mom, I mean, just speaking as a mom, that this would actually have any sort of significant deterrent effect. Um, question right there. It's, uh, salt and pepper hair with the sunglasses on her head. Right back there, <laughs> back there. On Twitter, there were these sporadic reports that the kids were being injected to calm them down. Did, is that true or not? I don't want it to be true. That's such a great, yeah. great question. Yeah. I, I have no evidence that that is 
true. I can tell you very, people are very concerned about that. Um, there is a specific group in Texas, Disability Rights Texas, that has authority to go into federal facilities actually to oversee anything touching disability or mental health issues. And, and I know that they are specifically seeking access into facilities to track down those allegations. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's a wretched thought, but I don't, I, I don't know. Question down here in, in the black. Um, I've, I mean, this may seem simplistic, but who ultimately is going to hold these institutions accountable <laughs> for reuniting these families? Yep. And who, who holds them accountable for putting these families back together? And probably the most important question that should be asked. Yeah. Yes. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm going to give you two answers to that. Um, the number one is all of you. And, and I don't mean to sound flip or... <laughs> you know, Pollyanna-ish, but at the end of the day, we live in a democracy, and if we don't like this, we should vote out the people doing this. There, there's, you know, that, that is... <laughs> um, and I think that, look, the, the executive order, as contradictory and... Um, and, 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 you know, as, you know, causing as many problems as it purported to solve. But, you know, look, that's showing that there is um, movement in response to political pressure and in, in response to the millions of Americans who have been stepping up and saying, this is not okay. I'm not going to stand for this. And I think that is, um, you know, one thing I would actually beg of people, I, I was on a, NPR show this morning and somebody called in and said that, you know, that she was having compassion fatigue and I, I get it, you know, we're, we're all really tired. But I think that something everybody can do is try to fight that and there are concrete, I mean, the number one thing, if everybody wants to, you know, whip out your phone and call your elected representative, as I said, um, all deportations of these families must stop until they're reunited. We should be demanding transparency. The government has the tools in its power to at least tell everybody where everybody is within 48 hours. And, and you know, I think these are the types of things that we need to continue to demand. Um, number two, so uh, another thing that my very small but very mighty team is doing is we have a action before something called the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. This is an international tribunal. The U.S. is part. Um, we um, are, are responding to a request for more information tomorrow. The government has also been asked to actually um, give information to a lot of the questions that we've been raising. And we do expect that body to issue a directive against the U.S. government. I am um, we're cautiously optimistic, as you know, you can never know 100% in litigation. We're cautiously optimistic that they are indeed going to tell the government, at the very least, to reunite the, the families that we represent. Now, the question then is, will the United States comply? And the United States historically has complied. The only countries in the Americas that don't comply are Cuba and Venezuela. And I, I believe, even in our darkest moment, that's not where the United States is. Um, but I, I do want to continue educating people about that process because, you know, that is an outside body that can um, 
you know, have some accountability towards the United States government. Although, <laughs> to end where I started, you know, it, it very well might be the case that making sure the government complies with that body is going to be up to you and up to the voters of this country. The men here in the black jacket. I, um, I, I hear you. I guess what I'm asked, what, what I, I, I probably all of us want is some kind of exhausted list of the things that we can do. And yeah. it sounds like, you know, there are things that we can do. And that's, yeah. that's great. Um, tangentially related, but and bringing it further away from the border. But there, apparently, there's a task force to denaturalize, naturalize U.S. citizens. It's in a New Yorker article of, uh, of the 18th. You can't. That, that's not. Do you know anything about Look, that? Look, I, I, I can't. <laughs> You've got enough on your plate. Yeah, I, I can't speak to that. Thank I, you, I cannot imagine that has legs. But obviously, I, I didn't imagine two months ago that we'd be in this in this crisis. Can I just note that um, the Texas Civil Rights Project, as I said, we are working actually with a network of organizations in Texas and nationally, and. Um, we, we, we want to fight compassion fatigue and, and, and galvanize this moment. I, I encourage you to go to our website. We have a list of ways you can volunteer with us. If you're a lawyer, we are directly coordinating all lawyer volunteers with a host of other organizations. And then we're also keeping updated ways that you can go to political rallies. We're going to launch a petition um, later today to try to get the government to cease deportation. So uh, you can keep an eye on our website for other ways to plug in immediately. Thank you. Right. Yeah, thank I mean, you. Hi, Steve Sellers, now president of the Arizona Community Foundation. Thank we you. work along the border. Thank you. Um, there's a piece in the New York Times about 34 major law firms organizing. Yes. You know about that? Yes. And uh, <laughs> two other things. Uh, why, why Texas? Why not New Mexico, Arizona, California, in terms of the public attention? Yes. And so why is it focused on Texas? And lastly, what are the local child protective service agencies doing, and what jurisdiction do they have? Hmm. Hmm. Um, so let me take the, so in order, um, yes, we are coordinating with um, major law firms, including um, you know, this kind of coalition of law firms that have come together. Um, you know, I'm going to be on a call later this afternoon to try to get people from New York to Port Isabel. Um, so we're extraordinarily grateful for those partnerships. Um, number two, why Texas? I think there's two reasons. One, um, despite the claims of the Trump administration, zero ton, and, and as shocking as this is going to sound, the, the zero tolerance policy of Removing discretion from prosecutors, 100% um, criminal prosecutions, including of families. As far as we can tell, it was not actually implemented 100%. It was implemented maybe 50%. And so um, we, we know for a fact that, so one of the places where it was implemented 100% um, was in South Texas, which is a very busy border crossing. And so we believe that's why. For instance, um, you know, we've been able to talk to 381 of the 2,000 families who have been separated in McAllen. We've talked to them in McAllen, and I think that's the reason why. I'll also say that um, you know, um, I, I credit my organization for actually bringing a lot of attention to this very, very quickly. We realized this was going on, as I said, in mid-May, I think before I was really hearing about it um, very widespread. And 
we decided, um, honestly, with, without, with, uh, on bubblegum and duct tape, which is my favorite resource allocation, mm -hmm. to um, file this petition with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And we also went to the press immediately and started sharing the stories. And I think that some of the original stories that we shared, one that's in our petition that was filed on May 31st of a woman um, telling us that her daughter was being taken away to get a bath and never came back. I think that story, and then a story that one of our attorneys told on um, CNN in early June uh, that a woman had told her that a, her child had been separated while she was breastfeeding or right after she had been breastfeeding. And that, I think those two things really blew up and it, it actually helped humanize this issue, I think illustrate how horrific it was. And it, and it you know, I mean, we ended up having I mean, I'm not joking, or maybe, maybe 200 media publications at the McAllen courthouse every day when our team was coming outside. I mean, the woman here in purple, and then the young woman here, Sophia, who's yeah. been very patient, very quickly. Hi, Mimi. Uh, Sarah yeah. Gelster, state senator from Oregon. Yeah. Tagging on to that question, as, um, as state legislatures, governors, and mayors of, of large city that, cities that are receiving these children, what questions should be, we be asking? What regulatory authority do we have? And what should we be doing to stand up to the federal government and exercise our own sovereign power to take care of these children when they come into our states? Quickly. Those are some great questions. Uh, Quickly. OK. <laughs> My understanding is that there's actually differences in every state vis-a-vis -vis how the state licensing and child care procedures work. Um, so I would think just get to the bottom of that. Um, you know, look, I think that, that states that are uh, accepting children and families, that you should be demanding to know the information that I was laying out before, transparency, timeline, all of that. Um, and then, um, look, I, there's a lot of, you know, this is maybe broader than this exact crisis, but, but the, there's obviously a lot of needs um, to make sure that basic principles like due process are upheld in this moment and probably going forward. And I think that um, I, for one, have been very grateful to see um, you know, attorney generals, city attorneys, county attorneys actually stepping up in places like Texas and across the country um, to, to, to vindicate our constitutional rights. Sophia. Hi, I'm Sophia Voss. I'm from American University. Uh, I'm curious to know uh, what your thoughts are and what your organization's thoughts are uh, on ICE as an entity itself, um, formed you know, under the Bush administration, grown under the Obama administration, to really be exercising a reign of terror right now. Um, a lot of people are calling for its abolition entirely uh, because they believe in its power to like be an ethnic cleanser. What is your thoughts on that? Well, this is very strong language from Sophia. Um, <laughs> Mimi, is it as bad as that? You know, every day that I get older, I'm more thankful for younger people <laughs> on the front line. Um, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, look, there's lots of things that are broken about our immigration system. And I think that we honestly all should be trying to find common sense solutions. And, and what I will say about ICE is that, um, you know, I'm just going to share one story and I can talk with you afterwards, but in Austin in February following the election, there was a ICE raid on, um, on Austin, on, on the undocumented communities, and 
it was, it has now been verified that that was politically motivated because the sheriff of Austin was taking a stand against so-called ICE detainers, which raise um, serious uh, constitutional concerns. So politically motivated and swept up, you know, 65 people. But the aftermath of that, the fear that shot through the community was just unbelievable. Austin public school attendance down significantly. Every missing kid was Latino. Doctors saying, kid, you know, pediatricians saying kids are not coming to get their checkups. All these kids, you know, they, they were not, they didn't, they didn't, you know, they didn't look like my daughter. They were, they were Latino. Um, businesses all of a sudden saying nobody's showing up for work. Nobody's coming to the market on Saturday. It had massive ramifications for our community. And, and that's just our relatively small community in Austin. And so I do think that as an American people, we need to take very seriously the effects of that sort of law enforcement and be asking ourselves, you know, surely there, there's got to be a better way. So I thank you for raising that. Um, all right, since I see your hand up, the, the blue baseball cap. Looking at the last minute. Well, he's been hold, his hand's been up from okay. the very beginning, but very quick question. We've got two minutes left. Quick question. Big, uh, my name is John Karowski. <clears throat> I'm a lawyer from St. Louis. Yeah. Um, quick question. What is the big picture uh, solution? Clearly, the perpetrators of this have improper motives, and I think their motive is, is deterrence, and it's not working. At least I read that in New York Times. So what about asylum applications? Uh, how are we doing on those? David Miliband just said it takes nine months here. It takes eight weeks in Europe. Uh, long term, isn't those people hang in there? Yeah. Are they going to get in? Yeah. So Thank you. look, the, the, the <clears throat> solution to this immediate crisis is we, we should eliminate the zero tolerance policy that led to this mess. Um, yes, there are ways that we can have a much more efficient asylum system. Our immigration judges are backloaded in some parts of the country. Places like New York City that are very busy can be two years. And so, um, you know, unfortunately, however, it, it, this is President Trump's response in a series of tweets in the last 48 hours was, I don't think we need more judges. I think that we should eliminate the, 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 the due process protections that lead us to have immigration courts. And so clearly that's not the answer. Um, instead, I think that we should be asking, you know, are there better ways to monitor families so that they're not detained? Are there better ways to make sure that everybody has counsel during this process? And are there better ways to make sure that the wait time is not two years, that it, that it, is, it, is, um, it, it respects rights, but that it is a, a streamlined, more easily understandable process? I, I have confidence that we could do that as a society. Well, Mimi, you answered the question that I was going to ask you as an out question about the president's tweets about, ah, we don't need any judges and no more due process. So on that, Mimi Marziani, president of the Texas Civil Rights Project, thank you, thank you, thank you very much for explaining all of this. Mimi Marziani leads the Texas Civil Rights Project. Previously, she was counsel for the democracy program of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU's School of Law. There, she worked to promote voting rights and regulate money in politics. Jonathan Capehart is an MSNBC contributor and a member of the Washington Post editorial board. Their conversation was held in Aspen, Colorado on June 26th. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.